ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Selena Green bringing you The Country Hour again today. In just a sec, you'll get a wrap on how much has been brought in across South Australia this harvest. Also, I'm wanting to know, have you had a chance to wrap your head around the changes announced to that controversial new biosecurity levy? We advised by the department that moving to this methodology would mean that some sectors would pay less than what they would have done under the original model and that some would pay more. More on that in a moment and you'll hear what Livestock SA has to say as well. But I want to know your thoughts today. My talkback number 1300 as this eased your concerns around how this levy might apply. The text line is 0467 But first today, as the 2023-24 crop harvest draws to a close, it looks like the state's total yield has exceeded expectations. Some parts of the state got a head start, others were delayed by rain, which has made for a bit of a mixed bag this harvest. For an update, I spoke earlier with Matthew Palmer from Perza. Yeah, uh, so the crop is pretty close to um, being finished in terms of harvest and we're estimating around 9.3 million tonnes. Um, which will have a value of around $3.6 billion. So the 9.3 million tonnes is um, around 9% above the 5- and 10-year average for the state, and with $3.6 billion, around 25% higher than the um, average farm gate price over the last five years. So that's a pretty good result considering what the forecast was at the start of harvest. This is a bit above where you thought you were going to be? Yeah, I think it's a good result on a number of fronts. Um, yeah, in terms of a, a very dry uh, end of winter and into spring, so with um, July through October rainfall being um, well below and sometimes record low rainfall uh, across the state, um, the expectation was uh, yields may be down, uh, but in a number of the, as harvest commenced, um, yields were a little bit higher than estimated and you know, giving us the overall um, above average season in terms of tonnage. And the harvest period itself has been quite a, an interesting one, an earlier start, an, an earlier start for some in some parts of the sta- state. And then, of course, we've seen some um, decent summer rainfall as well in, in other parts. Has this had a pretty significant impact on volumes, but, but more particularly quality of what you've been seeing? Yeah, it was an interesting harvest season. So some areas were off to their earlier start, almost on record, and a record early finish. Um, for other parts of the state, particularly into November and December, um, there was significant uh, rainfall, um, which has continued uh, into January, which has delayed uh, harvest across later parts of the state um, and downgraded quality, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately, um, feed grain prices have um, remained relatively strong, um, which has, hasn't had the, um, as large an impact as it might have in previous seasons with um, similar quality downgrades. So the December rainfall that we had, and of course not everybody got some, um, and some got certainly more than others, but what does that then mean for feed, but also, I guess, weeds sprouting up around the place? Generally, that um, subsoil moisture is a, a, hopefully be a positive start into, into next season uh, for the cropping season for pastures and, and feed. 
um, it's a, a positive uh, result with good um, pasture growth and supporting um, livestock production. But it, obviously, yeah, sprouting of weeds will need to be managed to ensure that um, soil moisture is retained. That was Matthew Palmer there. He's the General Manager of Industry Partnerships and Intelligence at PERSA. We're revisiting an announcement made by the federal government yesterday and it's that it will change the way farmers contribute to a new biosecurity levy. After years of lobbying from the farm sector for a sustainable funding model for services such as sniffer dogs at airports and x-ray machines at mail centres, the new levy was announced in last year's federal budget. The commitment set out that passengers, importers, Australia Post and farmers contribute to fund the biosecurity services designed to keep pests and diseases out of the country. Under the changes announced yesterday, Today and expected to come into effect on July. Agriculture, fisheries and forestry are still expected to stump up funding. But as Ag Minister Murray Watt explained before a Senate committee last night, how that contribution is split will change. We advised by the department that moving to this methodology would mean that some sectors would pay less than what they would have done under the original model and that some would pay more. OK, which, um, ones, will, which ones will pay more? So... There are a number of sectors uh, that, as I understand it, don't charge industry levies at the moment for R&D and marketing and things like that. And the examples from memory I was given were tomatoes, uh, some of the berry industries. I can't remember if there are others. Those ones, I remember those ones. Fisheries. Fisheries. Well, fisheries. They don't pay. Well, I don't know. Ms. Jagers. Uh, so there's a number of industries that currently don't pay any levies under the existing ag levy system and so under this revised model we're sharing um, the apportionment of the levy across all industries. So those industries that don't pay ag levies will now be paying this biosecurity protection levy. So they're paying um, something new as opposed to the previous model which we were basing on um, the ag levy system. The point about inequities, yeah. that, as I understand it, that point that some groups were effectively going to escape paying the levy because they don't already charge their members' levies, that was a big bone of contention for a number of groups. So, And then... Based on the figures, the examples that I've got here, moving to the GVP-based system is likely, these are all pretty rough figures, but is likely to mean uh, less, a smaller amount contributed by, for example, the dairy industry, the wool industry, the eggs industry, the avocado industry, the wheat industry, cattle paying a little bit more than they would have paid. They're the examples I've got in front of me. Um, but the department may have others. And the reasons for those adjustments is that uh, ag, ag industry levies are set by the industry and some industries have voluntarily chosen to pay a higher level of levy, so they might choose to pay more to cover higher marketing costs, for example. And grains, I think, is a good example of that. As, as I understand it, the grains industry opted to pay relatively high levies for their... RDCs compared to other sectors. So basing the new levy on that would mean that they faced a disproportionately high share compared to, for instance, those industries that currently don't pay any industry levies. Or a lower. Or, 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 or quite a lower level. level. And that was one of the inequity points. Mm.
Right. Okay. When, um, when, when, when the argument that was being put to us was that that if you're going to charge this levy, then everyone should pay their share, and and not just those who've already elected to pay levies. That's Agriculture Minister Murray Watt responding to questions from the opposition's Queensland Senator Matt Canavan. He also heard Bronwyn Jaggers from the Department of Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry responding to questions there. Livestock SA was one of the numerous industry groups who've been opposing this levy. Its CEO is Travis Tobin. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Selena. Uh, we've only had these changes announced in the past 24 hours. Not sure if you've had much of a chance to look across them and, and see just how different it is to what was previously uh, announced. What do you make of the changes? You're right. I haven't had a chance to look across it in detail, but um, I guess a few things to say. Uh, you know, there are some good things that have come of it. So I guess the first thing we should actually say, and, and not forget in all of this is that um, we do commend the government for actually looking for a sustainable funding model for biosecurity. Like that's been something that industry for a long time has has been requesting get addressed, and you know the, the current government is doing that. So you know, big tick there, absolutely. Uh, the other positive I think is that it's shown a willingness to actually undertake some consultation with industry, which hadn't happened in the previous uh, biosecurity protection levy approach. And I guess, as I said, on the surface, what I can see is it is a more equitable approach as it standardises the collection mechanism across industries rather than just what are you currently paying in a, in a levy sense. And it also captures those industries that are, um, you know, don't have levy arrangements. So you know, that's another important element. I know that Livestock SA had opposed the levy in the format that it was announced. What were the, I guess, the key concerns around how it was intended to be imposed? Yeah, so on principle, we still do oppose it, Selena, because we don't, and, and this is the things that still haven't come through in the consultation to date. So um, there's still a lack of recognition about what producers and the industry more broadly actually currently contribute to the biosecurity system. So if you're a South Australian livestock producer, you're currently investing in biosecurity on four levels. You've got a lot of your own farm private business investment to make sure, uh, you know, your boundaries are safe and you're doing all the right things on your property. Um, at a state level, we also have uh, contributions into the government collected sheep and cattle industry funds. And, and that's not insignificant because if you look at those in the sheep industry fund, about 49% of the available funds are going towards biosecurity and traceability and those type of activities. And similarly, the cattle industry fund, it's about 37% of total available funds. So that's the second level. The third level is the statutory federal levies, which, you know, that's what the government was initially leveraging this off. Um, and that includes where we're funding activities through Animal Health Australia, the processes, the protocols, the programs we have uh, through that, where industry is organised and is, is being prepared and doing the right things. And the other one is general taxation. You know, one of the one of the things in this is, oh, and the taxpayers doing this, well, producers are all taxpayers too, so why you would single them out is sort of a bit bewildering to us. And the other bit that's really unclear is the investment and the use of funds. So we don't know how that will be undertaken. You know, originally it was government's just going to collect the money and then use it to fund federal government purposes with, with little input and uh, consultation with industry on how that's done. And again, that it kind of goes against the way agricultural levies work. So um, it's essentially a tax, and if they want to still go about that approach, they should just call it a tax. The reason I say that is why agricultural levies work is, yes, they're collected under taxing powers or other 
uh, mandated systems, but producers that are paying those levies have some ability to influence um, how they're spent. They have some reporting mechanisms on what's being achieved, what's not, and they also have an ability to set the level. So even in the statutory levy that was initially leveraging um, the biosecurity protection levy in the first draft, yes, it's done under taxation powers, but if industry wants to, they can set those levies to zero. So it's not the same as a general taxation clause where the money's taken no matter what and you have no say over how it's spent. So that's the sort of very basic but clear distinguishment as to why industry supports levy mechanisms because they they want accountability for how they're spent. They want to be able to have some influence over what activities they actually do. And then those reporting mechanisms back and that transparency of governance of how that money's, money's being used. So... With this, again, I haven't unpacked the detail, I haven't had time to look at that yet, but if it's still the sort of same approach that was proposed in the initial draft of the biosecurity protection levy, that bit's missing. So, you know, fundamentally, it undermines people's understandings of why they pay certain levies into their industry structures and what they do for them and their ability to influence them. I was looking at uh, your submission on this that uh, Livestock SA sent last year and you call for risk creators to be identified and pay their fair share. Just explain that a a bit more. Who is perhaps creating a biosecurity risk but not, in Livestock SA's view, perhaps paying their share of protecting and dealing with biosecurity issues? Well, I guess the the two ones that logically come to mind is uh, tourism and the environment. So, Again, this is where perhaps because it's simpler, because these structures exist in agriculture, it's easier to say, well, you're the beneficiary, you've already got structures, you, you acknowledge that there are risks and you're doing something about it, so we'll just tax you a bit more. What we've always said, and this is a fairly broad industry view, is the risk creators that, are, that aren't captured in part of the current structures is the areas that really need to be addressed. So, you know, some of your listeners will remember, well, it's probably going back about five years now, but... The container levy that was proposed was a solution to capturing the risk creation where imported goods are coming in and that's where the, the revenue should be raised. So that got defeated. But again, industry's, our view, livestock SA's view, is that should still be a prioritisation rather than looking for more taxation means through producers. And the reason I say things like tourism and the environment, you know, they don't have any formalised mechanisms for uh, how they are dealing with biosecurity risks at their industry, industry and or beneficiary level. So to context that, if you look at the revenue of revenue generated in total agriculture, I think we're about $85 billion as a total sector at the moment, the environmental assets of the nation are worth something like $5.7 trillion. So that's, that's with a T. So you know, there's nothing that's actually saying, well, the environment is a huge beneficiary and how are we incorporating a mechanism that makes sure we protect that just because we do have those systems and we've been proactive in industry to do that doesn't mean we should continue to be taxed more. So what now, Travis, as you mentioned, uh, still to look further into the detail of these changes that have, have been announced and then it may be the case of continuing to, to lobby and work with the government to, to get a, a system that you're happy with? I think that's it, Swain. It's really, I, I don't see the government uh, walking away from this, it, it appears as though you know it, it's in budget measures and those sorts of things. So that if you look at the numbers that have been derived from the revised model, it's pretty much the same as the original model. It's around that $50 million additional contribution from industry. So it, it doesn't look like there's an opportunity potentially to 
to remove it. But if it is to stay, for the reasons I outlined before, we absolutely need to make sure that it, if it is going to be a levy and a levied, industri- levied on the industry commodity, uh, those sorts of things, there needs to be a way that industry has um, a, a level of input, a level of accountability back for that expenditure and, you know, ideally uh, an ongoing interaction with an ability to influence it if industry doesn't feel like that's the best expenditure of those funds raised. Travis Tobin, thanks for joining us on The Country Hour. Pleasure, Selena. Travis Tobin there, the CEO of Livestock SA. It's 21 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green on this Wednesday. Time to head to the markets now. We have the Dublin sheep and cattle sale results today with Elsie Adamo. Afternoon, Elsie. Good afternoon, Selena. Numbers increased substantially as agents offered 11,000 lambs and 4,000 sheep. Quality was only fair to average as two-score merinos continued to be offered in large numbers with the best of the crossbred lambs lacking the finish of recent weeks. One processor buyer was absent with competition from the balance of the trade and restocker buyers extremely erratic. Some wide variations in pricing were evident as the best of the crossbreds eased $10 to $15 per head, with the best of the merino lambs back by a similar amount due in large part to the quality on offer. Mutton quality was good and prices here were again depressed. Extremely light lambs sold from $20 to $120, as light weights sold from $80 to $145, and light trade weights $45 to $144 per head. Medium trade weights sold from $80 to $158, as heavy weights ranged from $136 to $188, with extreme heavy weights selling from $168 to $200 per head. Hoggets were also offered in large numbers and prices were ranged from 30 to a top of $102 per head. Light ewe mutton sold from 30 to $42 as heavyweights ranged from 55 to $66 with a sizable draft of heavy weathers selling to $84 per head. Ram sold from 5 to $60 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, numbers increased marginally as agents offered 360 live weight and open auction cattle. Quality was extremely mixed this week with more two-score cattle on offer. The usual trade and processor buyers, feeders and restockers provided reasonable competition. Vila steers and heifers eased 10 cents per kilogram as steers sold from 288 to 312 cents, with heifers selling from 200 to 290 cents per kilogram. Yielding steers and heifers sold generally firm for type and condition, with steers selling from 250 to 318 cents, with heifers making 238 to 272 cents per kilogram. Grown steers sold from 220 to 322 cents, with grown heifers ranging from 240 to 290 cents per kilogram. Medium cows sold from 170 to 250 cents, as heavy cows sold from 214 to 240 cents per kilogram. Bulls sold from 100 to 240 cents per kilogram. This has been Elsie Adamo filling in again for John Traeger for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Elsie. And I don't, unfortunately, have a Mount Gambier market report to bring you today, but I do understand that numbers uh, were down today out of the Mount Gambier sale yards. How to relax with Tom Gleeson from Hard Quiz. Holiday. Throwing in a line. A great time. Other fish biting. Hard. <laughs> Cruising on a pushy. Don't forget to pedal. Hard. And generally getting teed off. Don't swing too. Hard. How's the serenity, Tom? I need to go back to work to relax. The new season of Hard Quiz. Ah! 
Wednesday nights on ABC TV and always free, always entertaining on ABC iView. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. It's time to head to the Weather Bureau and our forecaster today is Jenny Horvat. Hello, Jenny. Good afternoon, Selena. Well, we had some interesting weather make its way across yesterday. Has that seemed to have blown through now? Yeah, that's right. So things are much more settled today um, across the state and even over the border compared to what they were yesterday and that trough moving well up into the far northeast today. So as a result, yesterday we did see some thunderstorm activity develop ahead of that trough and near that trough, mostly around the Riverland and the southern parts of the northeast pastoral district. And we did observe... um, a wind gust at the Renmark Airport of 95 kilometres per hour with a thunderstorm yesterday afternoon. Not a lot of rainfall um, recorded, even though we did see a little bit of thunderstorm activity around that area yesterday afternoon. So Renmark picking up 2.4 millimetres and Gloopop picking up 2.6 millimetres elsewhere. Falls were less than a millimetre. So even though we did have a bit of thunderstorm activity around, it was more likely to be a bit windy and we did see some dust observed as well with that change moving through. But we are looking at much more settled conditions today. We've got a ridge of high pressure um, to the south of us and we'll have a high pressure system become established in the bite and just um, float around just to the south of the state um, for the remainder of the week and into the weekend. Generally looking at those temperatures below average for today and tomorrow but then a gradual warming as we head into the weekend with above average temperatures a forecast for later in the weekend and early next week. There will still be a bit of a trough of low pressure that will linger up around the far northeast of the state on the Queens, up around Queensland. So more likely to see some of that shower and that thunderstorm activity over the Queensland side of the border. Um, but we could see a little bit drifting into that very far northeast corner on during the afternoon periods, but really expecting most of that activity to stay on the other side of the border. Uh, the other area of note is again I guess up around the very far northeast with the NT borders we head into the late part of the the weekend and early next week there's that tropical low up through there looks like it will again stay on that side of the border but we could see a little bit coming um, just fringing our border but again that'll be a bit of a watch this space and again we're not really expecting too much to make it this far south but really looking at some stable conditions um across most of the state for the remainder of the week and really into early next week. Maybe we'll start to see um, another trough moving through mid-week, but it'll be a bit of a watch this space. So we could um, see those temperatures rising, maybe a little bit gusty, but um, we'll wait and see how things are evolving for the middle of next week through there with that system. So really looking at rainfall across the state up until Sunday, we're not really expecting any rainfall. I guess the only um, sort of catch with that is if we do see a little bit of thunderstorm activity in that very far northeast corner on any of those days but again like the storms from yesterday we would only be expecting a few millimetres at best with that so a bit of a dry and warming spell coming up there Selena Mm, Sounds like it. Jenny thanks for that enjoy the rest of your day no worries. Thank you. Jenny Horvath there, our duty forecaster at the Bureau today. Now looking at the western inland parts of New South Wales, for tomorrow the upper western district expecting a mostly sunny day with a high chance of showers in the northeast, most likely in the afternoon and evening, but near zero chance of rain elsewhere and there is a chance of a thunderstorm. South to southeasterly winds, 20 to 30 k's now. Those overnight temperatures will fall down to between 17 and 23 degrees. During the day they'll climb into the low to mid 30s. For the lower western district, 
tomorrow, a sunny day. There is a chance of a thunderstorm in the far east. That's most likely to arrive in the late afternoon and evening if it does. Winds will be southerlies, 15 to 25 kilometres per hour, becoming light in the late evening. Overnight temperatures in the lower western district falling between 12 and 15 degrees with daytime temperatures reaching the low 30s. It is... Coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour in this next half an hour, a huge bill has gone through the Senate in this past week and it makes some significant changes to industrial relations laws, but particularly when it comes to the transport industry. We'll find out a bit more about what that means for our truckies, for transport companies and particularly owner-operators in rural areas. And just how busy have rose growers been in the lead-up to today's Valentine's Day? You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. Certainly been an interesting summer weather-wise and that's continued in a moment. I'll check in to the Riverland where some strong winds in the past day have wreaked havoc for some crops. And happy Valentine's Day, lovers. Are you a hopeless romantic who's gone and bought your special someone roses today? Or maybe you're a lucky one who's got some roses delivered. We'll find out how busy this time of the year is for those who grow these beauties. Completely cleaned out. row that we're standing in front of here has maybe two stems left to go out of hundreds of plants. Unlike some other crops, we can't just magically plant more to satisfy the the need. That's to come and while I wait to see if my roses arrive, I'll get to that and more after some news headlines from Chris McLaughlin. Hello Chris. Hello Selena. A Victorian farmer has died during storms that swept through the state last night. Damaging winds and heavy rain affected large parts of Victoria, downing trees and power lines leaving more than half a million properties without electricity at the height of the storm. About 220,000 properties are still without power. The Commonwealth Bank warns of economic strain this year, recording a 3% fall in cash profits to $5 billion for the six months to December. Inflationary pressure, more spending on technology and increased competition are blamed for the fall. A report has found the war in Ukraine and other international conflicts have driven global defence spending to new highs. The International Institute for Strategic Studies says spending rose 9% to $3.8 trillion last year. And a Melbourne researcher is urging doctors to consider prescribing exercise to treat common mental health concerns. Physical activity can be used to treat anxiety and depression, with some studies showing it can be as effective as therapy or medication. More ABC News at 1 o'clock. Thank you, Chris. Chris McLaughlin with those headlines. Don't forget my talkback number in this next half an hour if you want to get in touch, one three hundred triple two eight nine one, or send me a text on 0467 922 First today, a huge majority of what we consume at some point has travelled there via a truck. And now Australia's truckies are hoping they'll get fairer rates of pay and paid on time for that work under some major changes to the country's industrial relations laws. 
The government's Closing Loopholes Bill will introduce sweeping changes to workplace relations laws with a specific section for the transport industry. Under the bill, the Fair Work Commission will gain the power to issue mandatory orders across the road transport contract chain. Australian Trucking Association hopes it'll mean a better deal for owner-drivers and trucking businesses, but they do have some concerns still over how this will all work for rural transport carriers in particular. David Smith is chair of the Australian Trucking Association. David, thank you for coming on The Country Hour today. Yeah, thanks, Selena. Yeah, glad to be on. Now, this obviously, it is, this is a large bill. There's a lot in it. But in a nutshell, what are the implications of this uh, closing loopholes bill for the transport industry? Well, other than the, the uh, stuff you've heard about on the TV, meaning casuals can apply to go full-time and, and you know, like you said, this bill is probably quite enormous, actually. Um, but in terms of trucking... Um, it's got the capacity to uh, make it a fairer industry and deliver much fairer contracts. Matter of fact, the the uh, Fair Work Commission, FWC, have got quite broad-ranging powers in this that can actually look at rates and all sorts of things. Actually, Selena, it's it's huge. Yes. So, understand the Fair Work Commission under this will have some powers to issue orders. So, things like payment times fuel levies, uh, those sorts of things, they will have powers to, to make orders around that? Absolutely. Um, they're all things that I would suggest the Fair Work Commission would be pretty keen to have a look at. And that's assuming, you know, people make a complaint to the Fair Work Commission, but payment times, um, uh, fuel levies, rate reviews, you know, and what we've sort of pushed a little bit from the ATA is cost recovery, you know, just making it so that operators are aware of, you know, I don't need to mention fuel costs at the moment. Mm. <laughs> and I think um, that's an area that we're pretty keen to see about too. The uh, Not just uh, delivering fair, uh, con- well, we need fair contracts, but what I mean is making businesses, uh, owners of transport, more aware of their costs and, and uh, how to recover those costs. Because I've spoken with the, the livestock uh, Rural Livestock Transporters Association. I guess one of their concerns is that it'll set a, a ceiling, essentially. Um, th- that for rural transporters in particular, you know, input costs can be higher. That there is some concern that you know, this might not reflect the input costs. So, is is this a way to make this fair and sustainable? I believe it's a very valid point. By that, I mean, as a rural carrier, our costs are uh, higher than other carriers or some other carriers. And it is a a concern that I tabled with Minister Burke when we met with him that, you know, whatever the rate is, it will become the rate. And that uh, potentially uh, will disadvantage other carriers, uh, i.e. rural carriers, where some costs are higher. So it is a valid point and uh, certainly a concern that we've tabled with Minister Burke. I'm not sure how that'll unravel. I think if the Fair Work Commission set a rate, uh, it is an area of concern in itself because not everyone's costs are the same and that cost will become the rate. And it'll then be an argument with the carrier and the customer to try and determine a a rate that's applicable uh, for the job they're uh, being asked to do. Mm. So it it certainly is an area of concern for us, yes.
So in that event, I mean, it does sound like there will be an opportunity here for industry import, but how important is that going to be to ensure that the rates and the orders that are being made really accurately reflect what the industry needs, what owner-operators, what companies are going to need? Oh, absolutely critical. Um, we will absolutely need input into that. And, and certainly the area that applies to road transport, there, there will have to be a lot of input from industry in that, not just rates, actually, but the whole scenario. But rates in particular, because the industry is so diverse, and I mean that very literally, it is pretty much everything we consume, it travels on a truck. So it is hugely diverse. So uh, setting rates is um, going to be very difficult to be able to apply to, to every carrier. And I really do caution people in that area because the rate structure at the moment is uh, mixed loads. How, how do we set rates in that scenario? You know, being a rural carrier, we can have 20 or 30 customers on a load of general, for argument's sake. And I haven't got the answers to that, to be quite honest with you. I, I do not know how that's going to work. No. Yeah, because, it, David, that was going to be my next question. I mean, the the payment times, the rates, those sorts of things, how, how is that all determined now? How is this different to how business has, has been done prior? Ultimately, it gets down to the individual business, um, you know, setting their rates, but not just setting the rate or the payment terms. It is really a, a, a discussion between the carrier and the customer. And where it sort of uncum, gum, comes undone is if the customer digs their heels in and said, look, we're, we're only paying in 60 days, you're faced with a decision whether you take that job on or not. Mm-hmm. And invariably, then it gets down to your the carrier's personal, yeah, where, where the land sits with him, how whether he can carry that money or not. Because invariably, your fuel works out somewhere in the in the vicinity of 30 to 35% of your overall costs. And uh, quite often you've got to pay for that within seven days or at the bowels of pay straight away. Um, and if you don't get your money for 60 days, you've got to carry it. But it is basically an argument between the carrier and the customer what those terms are but if the customer won't budge you're faced with the decision of trying to find another customer if you can or um, put up with the 60 days so we sort of welcome that part of the Fair Work Commission to be able to set payment terms because that will make it much fairer for the industry. Yeah and I guess as for the rest of it uh, the devil will be in the detail as well. Oh, there's still a fair way to go with this, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I think overall this will be a good thing. There is, there is, you know, with the current fuel prices, et cetera, there's a lot of carriers that are hurting at the moment. Um, and potentially this has got the power to be able to make life a lot better for a lot of carriers. So overall, apart from the frilly bits or the fine print, as you mentioned, um, I think this will be a welcome change to industry. Yes. David, great to catch up with you today. Thanks so much for joining us on the Country Hour. Thank you very much, Selena. David Smith there, Chair of the Australian Trucking Association. He's also Managing Director of a rural transport company based here in South Australia. It's 21 minutes to one. you with Selena Green today. Well, parts of the Riverland copped a pretty nasty lot of wind late yesterday. 
It was part of a cool change that whipped across the region after temperatures had, for the second day, reached into the low 40s. But the strong winds did some damage. Stephanie Nitschke is speaking here with Ian Bonython, who is the State Duty Officer with the State Emergency Service. Get a bit of a wrap of what happened. So between uh, 2pm and 8.30pm, the Bureau issued a severe thunderstorm warning for damaging winds and that affected the Upper Riverland District and the Lower Northeast Pastoral District. And they actually recorded a wind gust of 94 kilometres per hour at Renmark around 3 o'clock. So it was was about a six-hour stint. Yeah, very stormy. And so um, any idea of how many call-outs? Yeah, the SES received eight calls for assistance over that period, and there were six tree jobs and two roof damage jobs that we attended. Okay, and so which areas got the worst of it? Oh, wow. um, We had uh, trees across roads, Loxton, uh, Glossop. There was a tree across the driveway at Chaffee, and also we had two really interesting tree jobs. One was at uh, Yamba, so between the checking station and the Victorian border on the Sturt Highway, there were calls for multiple trees across the road there, the highway. I think there was about six or seven uh, trees that impacted the highway there. Mm -hmm. And then also we had tree branches come down on a houseboat at Renmark North, uh, where two people and a dog were unable to get off the houseboat. So South Australian Ambulance... Uh, attended and they the two people had some minor injuries there, which SA Ambulance assisted with, and then the SES did some isolation of some utilities on the house, both so fuel, solar power, gas, those type of things. As State Duty Officer with the SES, Ian Van Eithen there speaking with Stephanie Nitschke. While emergency services didn't head across the border to Lindsay Point, locals there have reported some damage, especially to some of their almond trees. As Stephanie caught up with Tim Prusko, who's the property manager at CMV Farms at Lindsay Point. Uh, it was around sort of 2 o'clock, sort of yesterday afternoon. just started really as a, as a dust storm and then just picked up into, yeah, storm with pretty wild winds. Heavy rain, not a huge amount of rain. We only had about 10 mils, but it was quite quick. Um, and, yeah, just the wind. Probably we've never really seen it like that for a very long time out here. So caused a bit of damage, a tiny bit of hail as well, but oh. not too much. So, um, but, yeah, really just come out of, out of nothing. Sort of moved across probably this farm, probably about half of this farm sort of, I suppose, wore the brunt of it. But then it, it's moved the whole way across Lindsay Point, like the, the other farms and the hulling shed as well, obviously, sort of wore the brunt of it as well. Can you describe some of the damage that you saw happening? Uh, just, yeah, a lot of almond trees pulled out of the ground. Um, there is a lot of nuts on the ground, but we won't lose too much crop from it, which is really good. Um, a lot of a lot of gum trees, like in the National Park, um, along the side of Lindsay Point Road, so there's a lot of damage from that as well. So, yeah, just really, yeah, a big day of clean-up today. Yeah, just a, a big inconvenience more than anything. Yeah. And where were where were you when this was all happening? Uh, I happened to just be driving through the orchard, actually. So, yeah, as I said, just it's like it started as a dust storm and then quite quickly turned into almost, yeah, like a, a nearly mini cyclone, sort of, the way the wind was. Oh, you're getting ready to sort of harvest the almonds and, like, like you said, there's a, a lot of them on the ground now. So, so how do you go about it then? 
Yeah, so we'd already started, and most of the orchards out here had already started. It's just, yeah, it just causes a few more, it's just a bit more process now in, in dealing with it, just because you have a lot of mixed varieties on the ground, but it's just adds more time just with um, with our processes, but yeah, nothing that we won't, that we probably haven't dealt with in the past, the last couple of years have, have had these sort of spontaneous weather events that come through, you just, yeah, have to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did you hear of um, other people at Lindsay Point who uh, sustained some damage to their properties as well? Yeah, it's just similar across the across Lindsay Point, just with almond trees, especially a lot of the older ones that are, you know, obviously full with crops, so with that weight. So, yeah, a lot of the sort of mature trees falling over um, and then the same, just nuts on the ground. It's pretty, pretty much sort of like that across the whole of Lindsay Point. That's Tim Pruska there. He's a property manager at CMV Farms at Lindsay Point and he was speaking to Stephanie Nitschke. Well, the Federal Agriculture Minister says farmers meeting emission targets won't drive up food prices. The government has committed to reducing methane emissions across all sectors by at least 30% by 2030. However, groups, including the National Farmers Federation, say cutting emissions needs to be economically viable. Well, under questioning from LNP Senator Susan MacDonald, the Ag Minister Murray Watts told Senate estimates that food prices won't necessarily rise due to the emissions proposal. The government is not proposing to impose an emissions reduction target specifically on the ag sector. So any concerns from the NFF or others that we're going to require agriculture to be net zero, that is not what we're proposing. Um, We are proposing that the ag sector should reduce its emissions and contribute to an economy-wide target. But I guess I also don't accept the proposition that taking action on climate change must drive up food prices. Of course, you know, we've made clear our position that cost of living pressures is the number one priority for the government. Um, we've taken a range of actions already to try to address that. Um, we'd like your support for some of the ones that we've taken in the energy space rather than always voting no. But the point, the point being is that it, it would be naive to think that... Uh, activities to reduce emissions won't drive up the cost of food. I don't think it necessarily has to. If we can be shifting to lower cost energy over time through renewables, the cheapest form of energy available, that will reduce farm costs just as it will reduce your own power bill at home. If we can be moving to um, higher water efficiency, and farmers do a great job in water efficiency, if we can move to more fertiliser efficiency, well, reducing fertiliser use would. Well, I just said fertiliser as well. If we can be, if we can be moving towards more efficient use of inputs and more sustainable, that actually offers the opportunity for farmers to reduce their costs. That's our government's plan. Yes, that's not the view I think you're getting clearly from industry, and I think farmers in in Europe. Um, and in other places, Sri Lanka, have been incredibly clear about yeah. how the, the constraints on how they produce food. Yeah, but, the, but my understanding is that I have seen the farmers' protests in the EU, mm. and my understanding is that the EU is imposing a range of requirements and changes that our government is not proposing to do. Okay, I, I'm unclear how you're going to separate agriculture with an economy-wide target. Well, watch this space. Watch this space, says the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt, and that was him speaking in Senate estimates yesterday.
This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Yeah, with Selena Green today. How do you keep connected to local news and what's happening in your community? Well, Susie Williams has a passion for keeping rural communities connected and it's that passion that's seen her named as one of three South Australian finalists in the 2024 AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. Susie is an entrepreneur behind the Flurio app, a free online hub for local news and events. Susie, thanks for coming on the Country Hour. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on being a finalist. You must have been pretty chuffed when you got the news. Very, very excited. Um, a little overwhelmed, actually, but no, extremely excited. Um, totally honoured to be a bit of a role model for other rural women, and uh, particularly I've got three teenage daughters, so makes it extra sweet. Fantastic. Now, part of uh, the reason that you have become a finalist is the, the passion and the work that you've put into developing the Flurio app. Just tell us a bit about what it is and how it came to be. Uh, well, the Flurio app is a community portal that's created to support local businesses and to connect the communities within the Flurio Peninsula and Kangaroo Island. Um, it has come about from, well, I'm proudly born and bred in rural SA and have lived in lots of uh, rural areas in South Australia, eastern states and New Zealand. So it's come from a passion of really wanting to help um, support my local region, uh, I guess, wherever I've lived, but particularly now that we're back to where we call home on the Flurio. Um, it's something that about... I've always worked in agricultural industry, so for the last 34 years I've worked in agricultural research and consulting, but about had a series of events sort of 10 to 12 years ago that made me realise that I, as you know, one person, can actually make quite a big difference in their own rural community. So here I am. I came home and created an app. So I think you'd done something similar in New Zealand prior to this? Yeah, I had I did have some experience with something similar, so I helped set up a Marlborough app in New Zealand and it was really well received. So when we came home, I might have told my husband one too many times that <laughs> if I had a Marlborough app, <laughs> I, I would know where such and such was. So, uh, here, so four and a half years later, here I am. What's the response been like for the for the app? I know you set up what in twenty nineteen, and obviously then a, a pretty tough time after that, uh, especially with Kangaroo Island with the fires going through and COVID nineteen. So, did did you have a bit of um, sort of rough ground to tread over to begin with? Oh, absolutely. To obviously to provide a free portal, that means you rely on advertising um, to cover your costs. So yeah, it was a really tricky time, and there was definitely plenty of times I questioned why I had started it because yes it was very hard but um, in hindsight I guess that might have been a good thing because the whole idea is making sure our locals get connected as as you know we can be feeling feeling fairly isolated in rural areas and I guess COVID really highlighted that so it meant that people saw the value really quickly in what I had because most newspapers actually closed down in our area and it meant that people could still be connected, knew what was happening to the outside world, even if they were stuck at home. So it actually might have actually been an advantage, as, as crazy as that sounds. Absolutely. So this is something you're really obviously passionate about. And you mentioned there that, you know, a lot of rural newspapers and, and rural news services have disappeared over the years. The, the importance for rural communities to have this connection, to have this space to, to share their stories and, and to promote what they do. Oh, yeah, correct. Well, you know, the app's set up so it's got local news and sport, um, but it's but it's free, so it means that people can be connected no matter where they are. In fact, I've known, known in the past that um, 
people that fly in and out actually keep an eye on the Flurio app to know what's happening with their local sporting team while they're away. So that's pretty exciting. <laughs> Seems simple, but it still keeps everyone connected to home or to other people. Um, but yes, it, it means there's a central point of contact for the region in general, but also yeah, just keeps that community connected and keeps us really uh, keeping an eye on our local businesses to support them, which is the which is the real real um, asset of it. So if you do happen to be chosen as, as the winner uh, of the AgriFutures Award, do you have sort of plans of what you'd like to do or what it would mean to you to win? Uh, absolutely. Um, well, like I said at the start, it, to provide a free community p- portal, I rely on advertising. So the publicity and support from people like yourself is totally va- invaluable and very, very much appreciated. So thank you for that. Uh, and that's without being the winner. Um Yes, I am pretty desperate for a um, new laptop so that I can perform what I need to with my app uh, platform. But recently I've also taken on a local community magazine. So I need a little bit of grunt work at home uh, in my office. But um, ultimately it'll give help give myself the skills that I need and also the app, the final push to ultimately um, roll this community portal to other regions in South Australia as my aim and connect other regions. What a fantastic goal. Well, Susie, congratulations again on being named a finalist and and all the best. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. That was Susie Williams, who, along with Nikki Atkinson and Susie Evans, are the South Australian finalists for the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. And the state winner will be announced on the 26th of March and will represent the state at the National Gala Dinner in Canberra later in the year. The national winner will be awarded an additional $20,000 grant and the national runner-up will receive a $15,000 grant. So, well worth entering. Uh, finally today, have you splurged on some roses for Valentine's Day or maybe you've been lucky enough to receive a dozen? Mine still haven't arrived. Uh, it's a hectic time for commercial rose growers around the country. They've often been harvesting two months' worth of crop in just seven days. Larissa Smith dropped in to see grower Steve Klimek at his greenhouse. We're standing here in the greenhouse. It's a very pleasant 30-odd degrees in here at the moment and we're just having a look at some of the rows of red roses that have been pruned off for Valentine's Day. Been completely cleaned out, I should say. Completely, completely cleaned out. row that we're standing in front of here has maybe two stems left to go out of uh, hundreds of plants. You've got some other colours along here though. Does everyone choose red or they're happy to go with a white or an apricot? We do sell a lot of colours as well. The pressure goes on the red varieties, you know, red roses, because that's just what you know, Valentine's Day has been associated with. And unlike some other crops, we can't just magically plant more to satisfy the, the need. So the actual process for getting them to flower correctly so that they're ready for harvest for Valentine's Day actually begins in October of the previous year. Um, and then just prior to Christmas we go through with a strategic plan of uh, pruning and pinching in order to force the crop to arrive just at the right time and then you're relying on a little bit of luck to not be too early and not be too late. That must be a challenge because the last few weeks it's been reasonably warm. It has and so we, we make modifications, you know, during the the growing by adding more and 
and less irrigation to to modify that up. Uh, in the greenhouse environment as well, we also shade the greenhouses, and if needs be, we we top that shading up in order to just damp down the growth. And on different years, it's the other way around, where we you know we need to remove some shading in order to accelerate the growth. So it's really a matter of working with with each season and seeing what you can uh, modify to do that and keeping records from from each year as to to what worked what didn't work yeah whether you were too early or or too late what variety is this one here this one here is explorer um, and the other one is adrenaline and in one of the other houses we grow red naomi and bordeaux all these varieties are specific cut flower varieties, so completely different than what you would find in a garden centre or for the home garden, uh, because the characteristics that we're looking for in cut flowers is different to that uh, you would see in a normal garden. These plants here will throw stems that are 70, 80, 90 centimetres long, yet in all reality the actual bushes are 15 or 20 centimetres tall. So they're actually quite short little plants. You know, in a garden situation, you'd end up with these massive long stems on tiny little plants, which are you know, not great for appreciating at our eye level. It'd be well beyond. Do you feel there has been a shift towards buying local since the pandemic? I think it's allowed people the opportunity to evaluate local product compared to imported product particularly in our industry but even I would say in most areas of agriculture the the consumers are getting information now that allows you to make a more informed decision about what the trade-offs are from a local product compared to an to an imported product and consumers speak by opening their wallets and, and spending money on local rather than imported product. Steve Klimek there. He's from Premier Roses and he was speaking to Larissa Smith. It's two minutes to one, which means it's two minutes away from the news, which is not far away from Nikolai Bauhart's on your radio. Hello, Nikolai. Good afternoon. And, well, I don't know, is it appropriate for me to say Happy Valentine's Day to you? Uh, yeah, why not? Sure, why not? Happy Valentine's happy, Day. Yeah, and, and, and to you. Why, you. why not? Why not? Um, are you a, a tea lover? Are you a tea drinker? No, coffee. Written. Oh, it's, yeah, I need caffeine. Yeah. More caffeine than a cup of tea can provide. I've got a feeling that they're not that fu- they're not that different in terms of caffeine oh, really? levels. Oh. I might be wrong about that, but anyway, that's an that's an aside. Well, then you can probably you won't need to be concerned about what we're talking about this afternoon because uh, in the UK, the concerns have been raised that uh, Tetley, the the tea company, uh, is saying we might run out of tea oh. because because of the uh, Houthi rebel attacks in Yemen of all things that it's disrupting all the shipping. And it means that it's get, it's hard for them to get the tea where to where it needs to go. So we're going to find out uh, if that's if that's of concern to people in the UK. I imagine uh, so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is not, this 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 will this will shut down the nation if they can't yeah. or the nations. Uh, but uh, we're going to find try and get an answer to whether or not we should be concerned here in Australia. But yeah, you know, doesn't matter for you because you can just keep having a cup of coffee. Well, yeah, as long as caffeine supplies don't dry <laughs> up, everyone's safe. Thanks, Nicole. Have a great show.
Thanks for your company today, everyone. It's time for the news. The ABC Listen app means you can take ABC Radio with you to the garden or around the country. Take a bit of home with you, wherever you go. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.